Hi everyone, welcome to Dream House, the real story of Jack Ryan. I'm thrilled to have Dr. Lisa F. Wood on the show today. She is Professor Emeritus of Psychology at the University of Puget Sound in Tacoma, Washington, and also a licensed clinical psychologist in private practice. I'm so happy to have you today on my podcast. And we go back a long way, all the way to 10th grade. And we've been very, very close friends for a long, long time. And since you knew my father and you had spent time up at the estate, I thought you'd be a great person for me to interview. So why don't we just start with what you remember about the first time you came up there, or the first time you met my dad. Well, thank you for having me, Anne. I'm delighted to um, participate. I uh, remember going to your house for the first time um, more clearly than a lot of things at this point because it's over 50 years ago, but it was very stimulating to show up there, you know, and I think um, you spoke with a, a childhood friend who thought about it as, you know, how wealthy you were because it was such a large estate. But for me, that was not the impression at all, really. I mean, it was obviously a large estate, a large place, but for me, it was like showing up when the circus had arrived and they were setting up the tent. That's what it felt like, that there was something very exciting about to happen there. And we came in through the driveway and the first thing we, when we parked, he said, oh yeah, these are the cars my dad's uh, modifying and building. And I don't know if they were Mercedes or Bentleys, but he was turning them into limousines and he had one that was done and pieces and parts everywhere. And it was the middle of this, you know, car project and this fancy vehicle project that was going on. And that was completely unlike anything I had ever seen at anyone's house. You know, it wasn't a place that was ostentatious from the standpoint of everything's finished and polished and, and a sign of wealth. It was more that you're coming into an inventor's large studio in which they have a million projects going on. And not necessarily any of them finished, but some of them finished and, and amazing. So we, um, you know, we stopped and looked at that. And then I looked to the left and I could see the pool and the pool house. And there was a fire engine on the lawn, an antique fire engine. And I couldn't make sense of that, except that it reminded me of the clowns at a circus that would ride around in a fire engine. And that's why I felt like, wow, this is an event about to happen. And your dad was down there with a couple of guys and they were working on something. And I think there was going to be a party soon. So I think there was something brewing. I, I looked to my right and I looked at the house and I saw that the front door was up in the middle of the building and there were no stairs to it. And there were plywood mock-ups that looked like uh, a set for a castle, but clearly an idea in progress. It wasn't really a set even yet. It was, this is what he was thinking about. And I think that's what you said. My dad really wants to make this into a castle and he's dug the moat, but uh, you know, it's not obviously not done. So we're going to go in the back way. And I said, okay. So there's really no entrance there. And so again, you're in the middle of this incredible project and we come around the back or the side and there's this beautiful travertine, I think it was black and white or silver dance floor and this beautiful European style enclosed uh, room with windows. And this is 
where my dad lives. <laughs> this is where my dad lives. I'm like, okay. And it was uh, this beautiful party room with the fur covered couches and the glass, you know, the mirror ball that could turn and a big bar. And um, I was just, all right, okay, a party. This is a party place. And so we went through um, to the kitchen, which I think was pretty small for that space. We walked by a bedroom and then this kitchen and you immediately started foraging in the refrigerator. And in the refrigerator is food from a very lavish event. So I'm already thinking we are going to get in trouble if we eat any of this. And you said, no, Evelyn made all of this and you started just taking stuff out and there was prime rib and some special cakes and dipped strawberries and French cheeses. And you're just piling up a plate and I'm, I'm thinking we should not be eating this. <laughs> but that was not true. It was, it was okay. So that was my first impression. I think it was really the fantasy that was underway there of some other place and other time. And the idea that this was this incredible place to hold events. And that I, I don't think I met your dad that first time or I didn't spend any time with him that I can recall. Um, he was busy, something was going on. But we did meet Roger, and I think he talked. I, I think he talked about your dad as an inventor, and he mentioned the projects that they were working on, which included um, inventing a new kind of paint that um, called Azola Colors. And I don't know what there was about it particularly, but I thought, okay, so we've got this major event space and fantasy world, and we're working on paint. And then also he was inventing a coffee cup that would bring a boiling beverage to the temperature that was drinkable and hold it there. Something probably people really wanted in life first he came up with. So already, you know, just at the very beginning of this, I felt very much a sense of your dad's creativity. And it was exciting to be there and a little scary. I mean, I thought, you know, um, there were no adults around telling you what to do, which is what I was used to. If you come in the door, you know, you're already on their agenda. And it didn't, didn't really seem that way. Um, and the next thing I remember about that time was going up to, you were showing me around and you showed me the main floor, which was beautiful, even if it didn't have an entrance. So I don't know how your grandparents got in there. If, because I don't think your grandparents or your mom came through your dad's part of the house and downstairs, but I didn't know where that entrance was. But we, I met your grandfather and I might have seen your grandmother, um, but I remember meeting him and um, looking in the kitchen and the kitchen was an amazing kitchen. Um, you obviously remember, but I had never seen a vintage, um, it looked like an English style, manor kitchen for large events, you know, something that you would see in the manor houses in, in England. It's huge and it had um, several ovens and these antique refrigerators and big counters and it was gorgeous and I, you know, I've never seen anything like that. That was very impressive, but it didn't look like anybody cooked in it exactly. So I don't know if they ate there or not. So that's the sort of questions I have, but I didn't think about that. It was really touring this beautiful Tudor home and um, 
And then we went up the stairs. I might have said hi to your dad there, but we went up the stairs to the third floor where your mom lives, lived. And that was just very quaint, uh, very charming little apartment that she had up there. And that's where uh, your bedroom was and where we were going to hang out, I presume. Is that accurate? I don't know if it's accurate. I think that's what I recall. Um, it is. And uh, your mom had some paintings from the East Coast. It looked like uh, rural farm animals or prize cows or something. So it had this very different vibe of, of you know, a pastoral setting with um, chintz and beautiful upholstery. And I think that she offered us some food and we said hi. And then we went to go do whatever we were going to do, which is probably something we weren't supposed to do if I had to guess. So that was my first introduction to the house. It were these three very different spaces. And I think, um, you know, I didn't understand how it all connected up, but it was clear that, you know, you were living with your mom, but you were also down in your dad's space. And, and I have a lot of questions or curiosity about your grandparents because I, they were kind of in their own world there, it seemed like. So that that's my recall of that. That that's great. You you described that perfectly. But I'm happy to answer any questions. We had talked about this ahead of time that, you know, if there were things you wanted me to talk about, I'd be delighted to do that. Well, you know, I have specific questions just about that memory and kind of my confusion about some of it, but also some general questions. So I'll just tell you what they are and then you can decide how you want to answer. I didn't really understand, I mean, I stayed in your bedroom with you, but I didn't understand anything else that was on the floor there where your dad slept. There were other rooms, but I didn't really get a mental layout of that because we just kept going back out down the stairs and I never really saw what the rest of that part of the house looked like. And I really didn't have a sense of, of your grandparents' life there at all. And I'm very interested in who they were and how they got there and what they did at the house and how they interacted with your mom and dad. Um, so those are specific kinds of questions. And then more generally, you know, I met you at a point where you were independent and about to drive um, or already driving and, and we're going back and forth to see your horse and go riding and going to school. You know, there was a lot of independence already that you had or you were on the verge of that. But I don't know what life was like before all of that change occurred in the house where your mom was upstairs and down, your dad, when they were all living together, I don't have any sense of your life before the, the split. And I think, you know, that's important, so. We moved into that house when I was in third grade, second or third grade. And we moved from a, a much more modest but very nice house in Westwood near UCLA, what I would call a normal house. I don't think that I had seen the house before we moved in and I was still pretty little and um, at that point my parents were still together, husband and wife living together, sleeping together and my grandparents weren't around so the four of us moved in including my sister. And I remember that area where, you know, my mother's bedroom 
was both of their bedrooms. Diana had an, a bedroom next to that. And then there was a sitting room up there. And then all the way down this very long hallway in what you would call the servants area, I was in a bedroom that was originally called the sewing room. And it was above the kitchen and had access to some other dormitories that were over the garages, like for the chauffeur and that sort of thing. So I was in a completely different part. And I remember being kind of disturbed about it. Um, first of all, because I was so far away from my parents, but also because it, it was a less glamorous, for lack of a better word, part of the house. Then after we had been there for not very long, my father's parents who were still living in their home in Yonkers, New York, which was where my father grew up and where both of my parents lived in an apartment in that house. It was a very big house when they first got married. My father convinced them to come to California because he wanted to have them around. He was living in California and also because my grandfather was a very famous builder in New York and my father already had grand designs for the house, you know, he needed someone to help carry this out. So my grandparents moved in and they were on the, the main floor of the three floors and they had their own little suite of rooms back there. So it was, it was mostly my mother, Diana, me, and my grandparents, as far as eating meals together. In the morning, um, my grandfather, my sister and I would eat in the kitchen. We had a cook. And my mother and my grandmother would eat in the breakfast room, which was separate from the main dining room. And then at dinner time, you know, we'd all have dinner together in that breakfast room. And my father would be there sometimes, but not all the time. And then he got busy right away wanting to entertain. And in the beginning of all of that, my mother was a, a part of that as well. But then as the parties got bigger and wilder and the, um, the construction or destruction <laughs> of the property by my father, depending on how you look at it, became more manic and it was really noisy. My mother really started to withdraw and she just, it was just too much for her. So at some point there, my father moved out of the master bedroom that they were both in to a second master that was on that third floor that was called the Warner Baxter bedroom because the house had been built in 1930, 32 or 33. It was the second oldest home in Bel Air. And he was a movie star. He had started in silent pictures, but he was able to make the transition to talkies. So he had built this beautiful Tudor estate up there. And for some reason, I guess, he wanted two masters. I don't know if he was ever married or I don't know that much about him really. So my father moved into that bedroom, but added another door to it to sort of give himself more privacy because that room had stairs that went down all the way to the lower level. So he could come and go without being around any of us. So that happened. 
at that point, things started to seem less normal to me. Not that I really knew what normal was, but there was a lot that went on that nobody talked about, nobody explained. I mean, I had friends who had divorced parents and step parents and this, that, and the other. So it was just weird that the two of them were living under the same roof, carrying on separate lifestyles, but coming together from time to time for holidays or other special events. But everyone sort of lacked acted as if this was normal and i could tell as a child it wasn't normal and sometimes you know friends would come over to visit and they'd ask about it and it was really awkward for me because i didn't i didn't know how to explain it and but i didn't i didn't want anybody to think i was weird you know so i'd kind of laugh it off well, one of the things that I thought about was, um, you know, you were pretty young when you got there, and I don't know how many years in before your parents started separating, where your mom was not participating, but well, I didn't understand who was responsible for you and who was, you know, making sure you had, you know, what you needed for school or that you were doing homework or that you were getting to where you needed to go was, and how, how, who was raising you at that point? Well, yeah, that's interesting. I mean, we always had help, you know, in the form of cooks or nannies or cleaning people or this. There was always a staff. And I spent a lot of time hanging out with them, as well as my father at some point decided he wanted to have this student program where he recruited UCLA students and they would get room and board. They lived in those dormitories above the garage. And in turn for that, they did stuff around the estate. A lot of it was party oriented. Some of it was car oriented, like, you know, washing and gassing the cars and that sort of thing. And, you know, it was fun to hang out with them because they were all like late teens, early 20s, sort of like much older brothers. As far as supervision, there was very little supervision. In a lot of ways, I feel as if I raised myself. I did well in school, so there wasn't a problem. You know, I knew I needed to do my homework and that sort of thing. But I was also distracted a lot because when these parties would happen at night, I'd want to go down, not necessarily attend as a guest, but sort of come as an observer and just sort of be kind of behind the scenes. So I might hang out in the kitchen on that lower floor with Evelyn and Roger and just kind of looking out at what was going on. Sometimes I would come out and my father would introduce me. I was very curious about what was going on. I mean, there was always a tremendous amount of activity at the house. You mentioned the tennis court. There was a tennis court and a tennis house and we had a pro by the name of Patty Hurd who taught tennis all the time. So she was there every day. So she had clients coming up. A lot of them were celebrities. And then there were tennis parties that went on. And then my father decided to turn this pine tree that was um, next to the tennis house and the tennis court into a tree house. 
and he built this spiral staircase going up it and then there was sort of like a banquette and um, a crystal chandelier hanging over it and of course he had a phone up there phones aren't a big thing right now but back then we had something like 140 telephones including a lot that were outside he had bought some sort of a, a switching system from a naval submarine and had somebody install it so he could use all these phones not just to answer the phone make calls but also to control things like lights and music which was pretty far advanced back in the day i mean we do this all the time without thinking there was cell phones but there was nothing like that back then so it was it was a very sophisticated system so there were a lot of interesting things to distract me all the time so you know i love just kind of investigating what's going on over here what's going on over there and my mother just sort of retreated into her own world i really had very little supervision so just to follow up about your mom a little bit was she getting more into being an artist at that point i mean i'm just wondering if she wasn't really available and hanging out and doing all that day to day was she what was she doing for herself at that point i well a few things she saw her psychiatrist three times a week <laughs> so that was part of it she was in analysis she also worked as a volunteer at the la brea tar pits where she was involved in the dig for fossils it, it's hard to imagine my very sort of elegant mother on a ladder with tiny dental tools scraping away inside a pit looking for fossilized bones but she did that she was involved in various charities. And then at one point she decided that she wanted to go back to school. She had a degree from Parsons School of Design in New York, and she had worked as a designer for Vera, but she decided she wanted to go back to school and get a degree in psychology. So she was doing that part-time as well. She did have a lot of her own stuff going on to engage her and I guess distract her from what was going on at home with the bulldozers and the jackhammers and the endless parties. Yeah, that's interesting. I, you know, I volunteered and worked in that um, dig also the summer after 10th grade. Yeah. So I was down there. I could not get the measurement thing down. The, the, I just getting the strings and then, you know, have to say, look, I found a tiny bone. Don't touch that. And then you're supposed to cry. But there were, it was a really interesting experience. And so that was, that's interesting to hear about her. It just, you know, it's a fascinating story of what your day-to-day -day life was like, you know, with this really um, elaborate system that your dad developed in terms of transforming the building and having all these parties and, you know, all these young people who were there who were helping him make this happen. You know, I didn't really have much of an idea of what that was like for you, but I, but I think um, not, you know, not having any supervision would mean you really did have to raise yourself. You did have to figure things out. And I, I'm, I don't know how you did that, really. 
you know, do you have any sense about, you know, how you managed to figure out what you were doing and where you were going? To some degree, I, I, I think a lot of it had to do with the fact that my father was pretty distracted and focused on stuff other than his family. And my mother just was not what you would call a take charge kind of person. I can remember doing a lot of stuff from a pretty young age. And of course, this was way before the internet or anything like that. Like my mother and Diana and I would take a train across the country every summer to go to our summer house in Cape Cod. And my mom didn't like to fly. So we took the Amtrak Super Chief from LA to Chicago. That was two nights and then another train from Chicago to Massachusetts. And I can um, remember that one year I was the one who made all of the reservations for that. Maybe I was in 10th grade, I'm not sure. But I think it was also that same summer that she needed to have a rental car in Cape Cod. And I made the arrangements for the rental car. And again, this was a lot different than the way we do things now, but I guess what I what I suspect happened was I found her struggling with these things. You know, she really should have had like a secretary or something to do these things. But so I just jumped in and, you know, I've never been afraid to do something I didn't know how to do because I had always figured, well, what's the worst that can happen? How badly can I screw this up? So in a lot of ways, it was very good training for me to be self-sufficient, self-reliant, and confident. You know, there were good parts and there were bad parts. I could tell you kind of a sad story right now that I'm, I'm thinking of, and that is about my mother and her not showing up. There was a guy who wanted to learn how to horseback ride. And I had two horses and he was like maybe in his thirties or something like that. And I gave him riding lessons. I didn't charge him or anything like that for it. And so then he asked me if he could take me to this nightclub one night to hear a band that we both liked. I mean, it wasn't a date or anything. There was nothing going on between us or anything like that. So we went to this club and it was really strange because all of a sudden I look across the room and there's my father and Annie also at the club. And my father is kind of looking at me strangely. It's, you know, loud and crowded and everything. And I realize at this point that he's more than likely pretty drunk. And I could see him getting angry and I could see Annie sort of holding him back. And so I thought, oh my God, this, this is not going to be good. And I, and I said to David, who I was with, I said, we have to leave. We have to leave. I, you know, my dad's upset. So, you know, we, we quickly left and we didn't have an actual encounter. So driving back home together, it was like, I was so mortified by what had happened and frightened at the same time because I just couldn't 
figure out what the heck was going on, but I knew it wasn't going to be good. So I apologized to David. And so the weird thing about this is coincidentally, David also worked at Mattel, not under my father, but he was an employee there. But because of all of this, he said, I don't think we should do anything together anymore because he was worried about his job. And that was so upsetting to me that this was happening as a result of something that my dad was doing. Mm -hmm. So we went back to his place. I got my car, I drove home and I was really, really upset. And I went upstairs and my mom was asleep and I woke her up and I was crying. And I said, I'm just shaking, you know, from the whole event. And what I wanted was for her to comfort me. But instead, what she did was she said, wait here. She goes into the bathroom. She comes back and gives me a Valium. I didn't want a Valium. I wanted my mother to give me a hug and tell me everything was going to be okay. You know, I hadn't done anything wrong. But it upsets me even to this day just talking about it. So I think that's a pretty good um, example of my parents and me. Yeah, it's really sad. And it's also was very typical in those times for um, women and maybe men too. If they were upset, they would take Valium. And I wonder if that's how your mom was getting through all of that. Because, you know, living in the house with your husband, I don't think they were even divorced yet. They were just separated in his girlfriends and parties and relationships going on in the same building. I don't know how she would get through that. I mean, she was in analysis, but I wonder if when she was upset, that's what she did. And she figured that's what you should. Yeah, I'm upset. Give her a Valium. It leads me to want to ask some other questions that I've been thinking about, which is, you know, um, I was struck by the picture of your mom, the picture of the, the real Barbie. It's just such a gorgeous, young, kind of debutante photo. And that, um, you know, realizing that your dad probably fell madly in love with her at some point in the, uh, before they were married and that they came from, you know, Yonkers, the East Coast, um, New York. And there isn't, I don't have any sense really of what they saw in each other at that time. You know, because I was thinking, um, I was thinking about your dad inventing the Barbie and envisioning this idealized woman, naming her after your mom. And I thought, well, he must have idealized her at, at some point before things in the way he was thinking, you know, and his motivations. And um, it made me wonder, you know, where they each came from, you know, who their parents were, what their lives were like. and. Maybe that story you just told indicates that their parents were busy and distant and unavailable and had um, drivers and people helping around the house. And so that that is, I, I know a little bit about your mom's history, that there's a very close family there, but I wonder if the parents were really not about parenting. And Well, my mother's mother, Alice, was a stay-at-home mom, and she had five children. My mother was the oldest. And she was very involved with the children. Her father 
Austin was an executive with the Texas company and worked in the Chrysler building in New York City. They did very well, but I think they had more of a much more of a family life than we did. But this also makes me think of something else. I was doing some research on ancestry.com about my family. And I don't know if you've been on, but they send you a lot of public records. But what I discovered was that in 1962, my parents had a baby, a boy, and I guess he died right away. I never knew anything about that. But then that reminded me was my mother had said to me at some point, well, you know, if our marriage was better, I would have liked to have had a lot more children because she came from a family of five. We're talking about your mom and her desire probably to have had a more typical family where she would be staying at home and taking care of kids. And I, and I do remember in, um, the years where I was living back east, coming to visit on the Cape and, and meeting your mom's brother and sister and, and recognizing what a close-knit family she had and what a um, joyous time they had over many, many years getting together on the Cape. And um, so I, we were talking about kind of where her family came from. And then I think uh, the other side of that was really, you know, where did your dad really come from that he would have picked her and who was he at that time versus by the time that I met him and, and met you, you know, in 1969. So there's, you know, something shifted for him. And I suspect it was um, psychological, big shift. My father met my mother when he was in college. He was at Yale and he was involved in the dramat and they would um, put together shows and go to women's colleges on the East Coast and put these shows on. And he actually went to where my mother's, one of my mother's younger sisters, Priscilla, was going to school at, now I can't even remember the name of it, um, but anyway, so the Yale Dramat came to her school and he met her, you know, at some sort of a party and they actually dated a little bit. But then um, <laughs> it was funny. It, it, the, the story was is that Priscilla was too tall for him. So then he asked my mother out. And at that point, I don't know, she, I, she must have been going to Parsons at that point. And her family lived in Croton-on-Hudson, so not far from Yonkers. And so then they started dating. And I don't know how long they dated before um, they got married, but, you know, I think they had a, a fun time. I guess my father had this friend, George Zabriskie, who was a, a filmmaker, and he and my dad loved making films. And lots of times they would get my mother to be in the films. And she talks about one film where she was playing a gangster's mall. And she was just sort of like sitting on a, a stool in the background and eating chocolates and filing her nails. And 
you know, I mean, they just had a lot of fun and, you know, they spent time on the Cape in the summer and, um, and my father always made sort of grand gestures. My Aunt Priscilla tells the story of once he was supposed to meet up with my mother and her to go do something or other. And before they got there, my father made arrangements with an ice cream man that happened to be in the neighborhood to keep a bottle of champagne on ice for him. And when the girls arrived, he said, you know, you know, it'd be really fun right now. It'd be fun to have some champagne. And the girls say, well, where would we get some champagne? And there was the ice cream man. And he goes over there and gets this bottle of champagne and, and brings it over. So he was always kind of a showman. And a magician. Yes. So that started early on, you know, and um, he loved being involved with the dramat and he, you know, it is, it's, he's been an entertainer, I think. Um, when he was younger, he was kind of a mad scientist too. Um, one story is about him and his older brother, Jim, making dynamite in the basement of the house in Yonkers. And then they'd go outside and they'd blow up the lawn or they'd blow up a bird bath or something like that to impress the neighborhood kids. Yeah, so actually this was a continuing process of him developing fantasies and ideas that he would then bring into reality. And, and, and that makes me think about, it. I did um, come back down and live in LA in 1981, as you know, when my dad got sick and I ended up hanging out with your dad a bit. And I don't know exactly how that happened. Oh, I think maybe when we catered the party together, he and I talked or it might've happened before that. I, I can't remember, but I did have several conversations with him about inventing. We were talking with a, um, physician psychiatrist who is uh, trying to develop new therapies and medication for depression and um, I was had been doing some marketing stuff ad hoc and so I went with your dad to talk with him and and he talked to me a bit about um, the Sparrow Missile Project and I don't have a lot of memory of detail but one thing that stuck with me for a very long time was he said to me that when you are inventing just like with the Sparrow missiles, you have to think about what the end point is. Where is it actually going? What is it that you really wanna see happen? So this kind of vision, you have to have a vision of where you're going. You don't start trying to figure out the mechanics till you realize how far you have to go and what is it that you're really trying, what target you're trying to hit, which, you know, I wasn't, I'm not really a person who's that into um, armament and weaponry, but it always stuck with me as something that people often don't think about is really what is the end goal? What is the end point? And um, I think that he had a grandiosity about him because of that. But he also, um, the other thing I noted from that period of time, he was absolutely giddy and thrilled with innovation and creativity of any kind. You know, and so I remember right about that time, might have been later, you know, when Sticky Notes came out, you told me he had bought you and Diana, your sister, um, these notebooks full of sticky notes of all different sizes. And he was uh, really into them and wanting to use them. I, you know, 
know, that's a, you know, he just, it was such a great invention. Of course it was. Um, and also that at, I think at that time in 81 was the, were the first, um, first early phone machines. Um, and I just remember calling him up and his message was unlike any message I'd ever heard anyone do because it was this, you know, people are always saying, leave a short message, uh, keep it brief. You know, you have 30 seconds to say what you need to say. And his was the opposite. It was, hi, how are you? Tell me how your day is going. What are you thinking about? I really want to hear about it. Bye. You know, and it was just this um, reveling in new ideas and new visions. And um, clearly, you know, somebody who's going to make dynamite in the basement as a kid and blow up the uh, fountain is willing to take a lot of risks in order to have something really stimulating and interesting happen. And, um, and he did end up making uh, weapons, made missiles. He designed the missiles. And I don't think people realize, you know, sort of the hardcore, deep engineering genius that he was because they think of toys as, to as playthings. Right. Yeah. But he had, he had a lot more scientific rigor than you would probably find from most toy designers. And this, I don't know if you knew this or not, but he had undiagnosed dyslexia. He couldn't read. And his brother, Jim, who was six years older, would read the school text to my father and my father would memorize it. And then, you know, he was able to, you know, take tests and that sort of thing. He went to a, they both went to a private boys school that was kindergarten through 12th grade called the Barnard School. And so, and then by the time he got to Yale, he, um, organized study groups for each of his classes and would assign chapters to different people in the study group. And then they'd meet and each person would give their presentation. Of course, he didn't, he didn't assign any chapters to himself. So, you know, this isn't something that was discussed, but, and it, it probably disturbed him that he knew there was something wrong, but was loath to show any weakness or anything so instead he just figured out ways to get around it which you know takes a lot of i think genius <laughs> yeah so do you think that roger for example roger coiro who's working with him was also helping him to read documents and to do all this you know did he had continue to need that kind of somebody assisting in that way yeah i think so i mean he could read some stuff but you know he never read books or anything like that um yeah so i think that he got a lot of information by communicating with other people you know he loved to have meetings with people and, you know, and he basically just download their brains. You know, I, I mean, you've had experience speaking with. Right. That's what he wanted to do with me was to just have me meet him, meet the doctor and listen to us talking and then ask questions and have us fill in the gaps. And I would, I'm sure his brain power was so 
advanced that, you know, having to struggle to read things was, was a waste of time, you know, if it was going to take him a long time, he could get a lot of information in other ways. And I don't know whether he consumed other kinds of media um, as well, but um, it's very interesting that he found these really creative ways to get where he was trying to go. And I, it does speak to that idea, what are you trying to have happen versus how do I solve all the problems in between, try to get there. And Right. And, you know, and another factor um, played a big role in his life, and that was his mother, Lily. Um, she was really um, a social striver and, you know, was always on her husband, you know, make more money, do this, do that. And no matter what my father did, it was never good enough for her. So he'd come home, show her a test where he had gotten an A, and she would say, you know, didn't some of the other boys get A pluses on this? Couldn't you have done a little better? And you're talking about somebody who couldn't even read, who was still doing A-level work, but it wasn't perfect. And I think that that was a big theme in his life. So um, did you see any of that perfectionism in the way that he his expectations of you or his expectations of what we're doing around the house? Yeah, I, I think that, um, well, with respect to me, I mean, I wasn't an A plus student, but I was definitely an above average student. I probably got A's and B's. I think a couple of years I got all A's, but sometimes I would show him something I was working on and he would either say directly or I would into it this that you know well you could have done a little better which would be echoing his mother you know and you know and that's what i can see now i mean i see the whole situation obviously very differently than i did when i was a child or even a young adult it took me a very very long time before i could even start to talk about this or write about any of this because you know a lot of it was traumatic for me. And there were times when I was really amused by my dad. And there were other times when I was terrified by him, especially when he was drinking and would have a complete personality change, because I never knew what was going to happen. And, you know, it's during some of those times that he would get angry, and I just wanted to disappear. Well, it does, um, and I don't want to skip over that. That's something maybe to talk more about um, in another time together. But it does seem to me that your mom was someone who wasn't going to control him or criticize him. And that, you know, that she was willing to do what he wanted to do at that point and uh, wasn't going to push back or tell him it wasn't good enough or be demanding. Because your mom was a very gentle person, right? She was, but you've just reminded me of when we lived in the house in Westwood before we moved up to the estate, I can remember two really violent arguments. And um, 
you know, I could hear them screaming and yelling at each other. And then there was like this crash in the bathroom. And then the next thing I knew there was an ambulance taking my mother away. And I, and she had dislocated her knee. Now, I don't know if there was some sort of a physical struggle between them. Um, you know, I never really, I don't think you'd ever find any women that said my father ever hurt them or hit them or anything like that. I don't think that was in, but you know, she may have slipped during a struggle or whatever, but that was very traumatic. You know, first of all, nobody likes to hear their parents arguing, but I mean, screaming, yelling, crying, ambulance, you know, that, and that happened at least two times that I can, I can recall. So I think she learned early on that, first of all, you could never win an argument with my father. You know, he could just, or as my mother said, my father said to her once, I was wrong once. <laughs> I mean, you know, he, he was very smart and he knew it. And, um, you know, when he felt like being kind of an asshole about it, he would be. But that wasn't his regular demeanor. You know, it was it was more like when he sort of got pushed into a corner, then he'd kind of fight back or um, if he felt someone was taking advantage of him or he had been drinking a lot, you know, there was a big personality change. Well, I guess, you know, um, obviously, he had a very critical mother and when you're criticized a lot you learn to be very critical and you learn a lot of things to say that are going to cut people to the quick if you need to um, but i i have the sense that he wanted to do what he felt like doing i mean he, there were a lot of things he wanted to do that nobody would have wanted him to do i mean nobody would have wanted him said yes take the stairs out of the house put up the plywood mock-ups of the Tudor mansion that looks a lot better we would love to have that please dig, dig up the front lawn in the garden you know so a lot of his visions you know I'm sure his parents weren't thrilled when he blew up the stuff on the front lawn so he did get in trouble and he did probably have people pushing back I, I imagine your grandfather wasn't thrilled to have to do what he was doing to that building no but he was very supportive of my father. I felt that there was a very deep love between my father and his father. And interestingly, I know now that the reason that my parents didn't get divorced until they did was because of my grandfather, because my father, my grandfather was a very devout Catholic. I mean, he went to mass several times a week and, you know, the idea of divorce was just out of the question. I mean, my father said, you know, that that would kill him. I mean, I learned this later. And then, sure, my grandfather died in 71. And then shortly after that, my parents announced first to my sister and me that they were getting divorced, to which I said, thank God, <laughs> because now you know, this is something I can wrap my head around. The way you've been living was was difficult for me. And, um, and you know, and then they got divorced right away. So it, they were literally, I mean, mostly my father waiting 
you know, because of his father, who was such a big part of his life and whom he never wanted to disappoint. And I don't think his father ever um, exhibited any disappointment towards my father. I mean, he may have provided some guidance and that sort of thing, but he wasn't like my father's mother. You know, at the time, you know, I lived in this bubble where I was aware that the way we lived wasn't the way most people lived, but yet it was the only world I really knew. So, you know, and when I look back at it in retrospect, it's like, oh my God, that whole thing was just crazy, you know? I don't know how things evolved or why things happened, but I knew that I needed to be responsible for myself because I did not feel as if either of my parents would protect me. And you did a great job navigating. Well, thank you, Lisa. You know, it was just sort of a survival for, for me. And, you know, people who, who see this from the outside, they say, oh, you know, you grew up rich and this and that, and you had all these privileges. Well, yeah, I did. But that doesn't mean that, you know, on the inside, I was feeling like, isn't this grand? You know, there were, there were all of these confusing things going on in my family and the relationships and the emotions and everything else. And, you know, when I tell my story, I think that, I hope that people can relate to me on that level, you know, that they have felt similar feelings in certain uncomfortable fi family dynamics. So, you know, I, I hope to be able to relate to people that way. I, I think that people do have some sense in the entertainment industry, and your dad really was not only an inventor, but an entertainer and an empresario. Um, he um, was larger than life. You know, and if you think of the things he was doing, they were on a scale, you know, that's much bigger than anyone typically exists on, where he's imagining these things and bringing them to life and not living a day-to-day -day life like other people. Um, and so kids growing up in that environment, and many kids whose parents were in the industry and were famous or were doing very well, were, were understood to be so privileged because their parent was so wonderful and everyone loved them and they had all these riches, but they didn't have their parents. You know, parents were flying off to do films or, you know, busy getting ready or writing or, you know, they weren't available. And, and um, people don't understand that, that, that having somebody else there who takes you to school and talks to you is, is great that you have that, but it's not the same. That's right. And it changed, you know, there was a changing cast of help over the time, but I was always very, I, I loved all of them, you know, and, um, and I mean, thank God they were there, I guess, otherwise, you know, I would have been just <laughs> scrounging around like an animal on the, on the estate. Do you think, you know, when you think Annie uh, understands the importance of her role in your life and did Roger, do you think, understand? I think so. I mean, I met Roger when I was 12. He was originally in the UCLA student program and then 
you know, stayed on there and, you know, eventually became my father's right-hand man through all of the Mattel lawsuit and the ideal arbitration and the, the new design group that my father started, you know, so he, you know, he was like a, a brother to me. And I met Annie when I was 14, when she came from Paris and I just adored her, you know, I worshiped her. She was so fabulous. She was a Parisian beauty who was also a Fulbright scholar and could see why my, my father loved her so much. You know, the combination in, of brains and beauty was always very seductive. To that must've been hard for your mom too, to be around. Yeah, I know, I know it. Um, well, she had her other um, interests and probably her Valium as well. So everybody was just sort of floundering around in a lot of ways, you know, just trying to make it up as they went along. Because, you know, back then there was still a lot of conformity in terms of how normal American families operated. But you're right, you know, when you're in, in Hollywood, I, I mean, my father wasn't an actor, but he was certainly a celebrity and had a lot of celebrity pals. So he lived that way. Yeah, it is. And I think most people don't understand the uh, kinds of pressures that people feel based on being in a community of people who have achieved that kind of celebrity and wealth. And I know um, other people that we grew up with who came from similar backgrounds or who who were in that those circles and just being around it would think about you know how can i throw the most fabulous birthday party for my child what can i do to outdo you know cary grant or whoever in the movies you know had what they saw in the film of a child's birthday party with the ponies and the clowns and the you know spectacular cake and food and gifts and you know that that was something that the children became preoccupied with, you know, was my birthday party going to be as good as someone else's and good enough? And, um, and that's sad to me because that's a time when you should just be feeling happy and celebrating and not having to worry about, you know, is my birthday party going to be a success on this large scale of celebrity events? You know, and you're right, it, for the kids, it's, even though I had a lot of friends, you know, who, whose parents were celebrities, it's, I don't know, it's a weird life. It really is. We had one classmate, um, and it was actually, it was before we were at Westlake, and she had a birthday party, and she wasn't very old, I'm thinking, no more than 10 years old, maybe less than that. And it was in the ballroom at the Beverly Hills Hotel. And I just remember one very, very, very long table. And there must have been at least 50 or 60 kids there. And this entire ballroom was decorated with balloons, this and that. And she's sitting at the head of this table. It, it, it sort of reminds me of something like from Citizen Kane or something like that. You know, there was sort of a noir-ish 
aspect to it. So what about the media? So when you describe that, it seems like something that would be in a newsreel that would show up, you know, of uh, somebody's child who is a celebrity having their birthday party, just like, you know, you were seeing Prince Charles's birthday party. And so I wonder how much people at that time were trying to get in and maybe your dad trying to be a media item. And did he have a publicist and did he really promote a lot of what he was doing? And I think Annie talked about that when she was talking with you. Yes. Yeah, he, d he definitely had a publicist. Um, his name escapes me, but he had been a studio publicist. So there was a lot of stuff written all the time. But I remember, I believe it was the January 1971 issue, it's either 70 or 71 issue of Esquire came out and there was a huge spread on my father in there. But there was also this sort of glued on thing to the front of the magazine, you know, listing the hot stories and uh, uh, host of Hollywood, Barbie dolls, Big Daddy was on the front of it. And then when you opened up the, um, the magazine, the story was so salacious for someone of my age, you know, as a young teen to read that I was just mortified because there were sexual references and no kid wants to hear about sexual references about their parents, you know? And I remember a lot of people had seen the article. So of course it's like, okay, uh, you know, and they ask questions and, you know, it was incredibly awkward. And that's why it's funny because, you know, I had a couple of horses, I rode very seriously and competed but most of the people at the barns where I rode out in the San Fernando Valley did not know anything about my background. And I liked that a lot because I felt that, you know, people liked me because of me, not because of this sort of incredible world that I came from. You know, I just wanted to be normal. I wanted to be a normal kid in a normal house. I mean, I felt, I didn't feel that way all the time, but I felt that way whenever I was sort of in the spotlight, you know, I, I didn't, I didn't really enjoy that. Although sometimes, okay, I say that, but then sometimes I would do things um, like, for example, I had one of my horses up at the estate for a while and my father gave these Tom Jones dinners and he had this recreation of something from the movie, um, this long table with a throne and, you know, he would serve, you know, rack of lamb and all these other foods that you had to eat with your hands. There weren't any utensils, you know, and it was a wild, it was a wild party scene. And one night I, dressed up in renaissance costume and i festooned my horse's mane with you know ribbons and flowers and everything and i rode bareback inside into the house on the horse and right up to where the party was which of course 
thrilled my father to no end, you know. I mean, because he hadn't even thought that up. I thought that up. So, you know, in that sort of limited circumstance, I was comfortable playing a role like that. But as soon as there was a lot of interest from the outside looking in, it was just, and I think a lot of kids feel that way. They don't want that kind of attention. You know, they want to kind of, you know, oh my God, you know, my parents are so embarrassing. <laughs> Do you think, I mean, it seemed like your dad had uh, girlfriends and it, it always seemed to me, I'll just say that the downstairs um, bar and kind of um, mirror ball room, whatever you want to call it, was was sort of like a gesture towards, you know, Hugh Hefner's scene, you know, it wasn't I wouldn't say it was the main, it was the most interesting thing about that place by far. It was sort of a gesture of this is what people expect when they want a kind of sexy scene going on in the early 70s. But uh, what he had going there was very different What was in terms of its complexity, all the things that he'd engineered that you'd go around and you were really at an amusement park. You know, you had our, our junior prom at your house and I spent up in the treehouse just sitting up there chatting i mean just the fact that you could walk up a stairway and sit at a table that had a phone and hang out and eat or drink you know it's just um wonderful and innovative and the dungeons down below and the waterfalls and i know i reminded you of this thing that just uh kind of blew my mind which is nothing now because we've had all of this technology that's developed over the last 50 years but at the time um you know, and, and I think it was 1971 or two, you know, I went out with you to a club and as we're leaving, you put the dog in your bedroom. And as we started to go outside, you could hear the dog barking. And so you went to one of the phones and called up your room and there was a speaker phone in there and told your dog to shut up, <laughs> which your dog did. And that, that technology didn't exist anywhere you know, in the, in the public sector. It might've been part of military technology. As you said, he had a lot of connections and used a lot of that technology, but. Yeah, well, you know, it's, um, you know, you, you referenced the, the Playboy Mansion and, and certainly that was sort of the zeitgeist of the, the time, but then there was this technology invention creative overlay that, you know, made it a lot more interesting than whatever was going on over at the at the Playboy Mansion. And I think that's why, you know, people were so excited to get an invitation to come there because they never really knew what to expect. Right, it was, um, yeah, it was a spectacle and it was gonna be a surprise. And I think that your dad's interest in women like Annie and, I, and her in particular, just brilliant and and beautiful and not, you know, somebody who is just going to be uh, attractive because I think he really needed people who could meet him where he was and help him bring his visions to life, which, um, you know, Annie and Roger did, and I'm sure other people as well. You're exactly right about that. Yeah, he, he needed partners in this, you know, to help him realize that vision. So um, maybe that's a good stopping point for today. Thank you very much, Lisa. And I look forward 
to doing this again with you. Well, me too, you, and um, I'd be happy to talk some more. Hi, everyone. Thanks for tuning in. If you enjoyed the podcast, please like, subscribe, and share it. There are many more exciting episodes, and you won't want to miss a single one. 